I felt going to grad school is the place to go and get your brain sort of destroyed and re like re you know everything is recircuited and everything you thought you knew about design and making mm -hmm. is questioned and you have to sort of rebuild it again in your mind like what's this new circuit of process and thinking doing design interactions was at the RCA was it was just bewildering and mind-blowing and exciting and it makes you very unemployable perhaps so you have to find a way to earn money and keep living in London I end up working in, in industry to make money and doing things in the evenings and at weekends and collaborating with different people and mm -hmm. trying to figure out uh, my own interests in design and featuring and storytelling and making it wasn't until we moved to the US that we actually started like slowly figuring out where our interests lie and how we get how can we collaborate on a call yesterday with my friend Matt we were talking about General Seminar, which is a platform you've probably heard me talking about to provide an environment for co-learning amongst the open and curious. It's meant to be a highly collaborative arrangement of people in a room, in a seminar room, to come with an open so-called beginner's mind to discuss something that is so new to them and maybe so new to everyone in the room that there are no experts. And if there are experts, they really aren't experts because the topic may be so new that there are only a hundred people and every one million who have an active, engaged experience and exposure to the material the topic is on. It is something that is at just the vanguard of consciousness. Now, why do I mention Matt and why do I mention General Seminar at the introduction to this podcast? It's because yesterday when I was talking to Matt, he sent me to a 2005 lecture by uh, Professor Kenneth Stanley, who teaches AI and ML and who wrote a book titled Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, which makes the case that having an objective when one is pursuing an ambitious outcome is precisely the wrong thing to do. It's absolutely fascinating. According to Professor Stanley, we can potentially achieve more by following a non-objective yet still principled path. After throwing off the shackles of objectives, metrics, and mandated outcomes, something much more compelling is likely to be achieved. In the same afternoon that I was watching this lecture, I also happened to be editing this current podcast with this episode's extra special guests, Tim Parsons and Jess Charlesworth, who together are the Chicago-based British husband and wife team, Parsons and Charlesworth. We discussed their approach to creative work and what they learned through their studies at the Royal College of Art in London. In my active mind, I was knitting together these three th threads. Professor Stanley's compelling, almost paradoxical argument for approaching questions without an objective or expectation as to what the answer might look like. And I was also thinking very deeply with my friend Matt about what general seminar has become as a place for learning without the pressures associated with expecting to hear from or to be an expert, and then having this beautiful conversation with Jess and Tim about the work that they do, which I find very much aligned with all of these principles simultaneously. Keep these three things in mind as you listen to my conversation with Jess and Tim. Also, please consider supporting this podcast, which you can do over at patreon.com slash near future laboratory. And 
please also rate us on whatever podcast app you're using. That's another great way to help out. And if you're inclined to extend these conversations, please consider joining our Discord. I provide all of these links in the show notes, uh, which Apple, for some reason, does not make active. I'm increasingly confused by how Web2 has become so balkanized and walled off from itself, but I guess that's a topic for another podcast. Until that podcast, this is episode 19 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast, and this is my conversation with Jessica Charlesworth and Tim Parsons. Um, well, yeah, maybe introduce yourselves to start. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to go first? <laughs> go first. I'm Tim Parsons. I'm Jess Charlesworth or Jessica, either. And we run an art and design studio out of Chicago uh, called Parsons and Charlesworth. And we've been doing that for around about seven years, kind of officially. Officially, yeah. Um, but you know we're partners in work and life, and uh, been together for ever. <laughs> and uh, it's um, but it was only after we moved to the U.S. in 2010 uh, that we kind of realized that that uh, our practices had some kind of uh, overlap that was productive, and that we we really wanted to run our own studio together. Previously to that, we'd had totally separate uh, day jobs and separate studios. And, um, you know, we were collaborating with other friends kind of on the side. Um, you know, my background's in industrial design. Uh, and then I came through the RCA in this program called Design Products and then started teaching pretty much straight after that. Um, and then, Jess, you want to say a bit about your yeah, educational yeah, background? Yeah, yeah. I studied like, well, I guess, I mean, it depends how far you want to go, but yeah, <laughs> I studied in Manchester in the north of England, this very sort of hands-on craft course called 3D Design. Um, and it just was a really fascinating time to sort of make things. But then I was really interested in thinking beyond the making and I got really into the idea of going to grad school and mm. went to the RCA. But then Tim and I met when we were in Manchester and I guess going to the RCA just like, destroys your brain and you have to rebuild it again in a great way and that was after you graduate that was when I started working in industry what what does that destroy your brain part what <laughs> uh, I guess in a good way um, I felt going to grad school is the place to go and get your brain sort of destroyed and re like re you know everything is recircuited and everything you thought you knew about design and making mm -hmm. is questioned and you have to sort of rebuild it again in your mind. Like, what's this new circuit of process and thinking? So that going to the RCA, I thought that was for me. That's what happened, and it was it was a good thing. Um, it sort of re I reassembled my ideas of what I should be doing next. Um, so yeah, I ended up working in, in industry to make money and sort of, but was also doing things in the evenings and at weekends and collaborating with different people and mm -hmm. trying to figure out uh, my own interests in design and featuring and storytelling and making. Um, yeah. So yeah, it wasn't until we moved to the US that we actually started like slowly figuring out where our interests lie and how we get, how can we collaborate? Um, so yeah, it's been 
We're still figuring that out. We, but as we <laughs> figure it out, we just make stuff and do stuff and test things out and throw it out there into the world. Yeah. <laughs> What's the? I'm fascinated by the. Um, so you come out of school and then go work in industry, and then you do stuff at night. What What was going on there? Why? Why was that? I think like doing design interactions was. Um, at the RCA was it was it was just bewildering and mind-blowing and exciting um, and it makes you very unemployable perhaps or at least you you plan to do your own thing but you also know that maybe that you're doing your own thing you know exploring this this new t- sort of methodology is not available to you in this general sense so you have to sort of <laughs> you have to find a way to earn money and keep living in London and also you meet people and who are also on the same page as you and want to collaborate and try stuff out so working in industry to sort of learn things at the same time at the same time as uh, testing stuff out yeah. that relates to what my thesis was about yeah it's a very familiar dilemma that I hear a lot that I definitely experience. Mm. One of the things I'm trying to do is foreground that um, the the kind of consciousness that, that that wants to become something that you guys have achieved, and how do you actually do it? There's a lot of information asymmetry when it comes to how do you actually pursue a, a sustainable mm. life of meaningful practice. The last newsletter I did was uh, called Making Meaning, dot, 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 Making Money. Yeah. And I think that's a T-shirt somehow. <laughs> make meaning or make money or where you where are you on that? It's a thing that people, I think, suffer in and are challenged by. And there's no open conversation about how you achieve that satisfying, full, complete, expression of yourself without having to you know even the way you put it go to industry (laughs) and and uh you know feel your soul be crushed or your heart be hollowed out okay well i'll get a little bit of soul back and a little bit of my heart back because of the stuff i do on the weekend or trying to find a collective practice where you're making that balance between commercial Mm -hmm. work that also is maybe imbued with some of your creative spirit so it's like you come away from it and you're kind of like satisfied and proud and you point at it. And it's like, I know that was for industry, but look at this insertion of, 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 you know, meaning that I've put into it as opposed to, I mean, it's a cheap shop. It's like going to work to Facebook and find out that actually what you're doing is moving a web form around, you know, from one week to the next and making lots of filthy lucre (laughs) and trying to justify it by, um, by, uh, you know, filling your Instagram feed with beautiful pictures from your weekend excursions to Sonoma you know, <laughs> on your friend's private plane. Like, I'm still good. I'm still here. I can take creative, beautiful photos. I can enjoy sunsets and look at these things. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, it smells like sulfur in your, your work studio, doesn't but it? But it looks it's great. Yeah. yeah. I think there is a, a kind of a job of work for all uh, practitioners who have that kind of 
really sort of rich, perhaps you know, cultural critical practice that ultimately doesn't make them any money. Mm-hmm. You know, to if, see how that can have value uh, for quote unquote industry commerce, which whatever you want to call it, if that is something that. Uh, um, that is important to those practitioners. I think it's something we've been thinking about recently, having done the installation that we just did in, in Venice and had some really interesting conversations with a few folks after that who felt like, hey, you know, you've done this piece, essentially a kind of critique of the healthcare industry, of kind of data-driven capitalism and you know, uh, human enhancement that is an enormous industry and there are going to be leaders within that industry who might might be interested to hear a critique of what they do and of course you know we've situated that in in a cultural space um but you know we're starting to think well you know um how would those two worlds kind of come together uh, in a meaningful way um without it turning into the usual way that people do futures uh, in industry um, with workshops and uh, reports and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Which are beneficial. They're still an important part of the process for any different, depending where you're coming from, whatever direction, because some of those people know, may never experience that before. Um, but yeah, I think because we're, Meaningful exchange is is the maybe the key words. I don't know without a transaction that involves. Well, I don't know. We're trying to figure it out what is a meaningful exchange and knowledge transfers. All these like fancy words. We just want to have the conversation with people mm. who have got the access to things that make changes very quickly or introduce changes with more than just us two. Um, but we're also just makers and like stuff. <laughs> we like making things yeah I think that's the heart of it we, we don't want to have to change what we do uh, in order to make it kind of sell as it were and um, you know we, we want to see whether actually doing what we do um, getting the right eyes on it whether whether it does have uh, a value because I think obviously we feel like it does we wouldn't do it uh, if we didn't feel like it had some kind of value but it, that value could exist solely as a, a kind of cultural endeavor, as, as a sort of critique of the way things have turned out in society and are turning out. Mm-hmm. I think, and also the bit about like the foreground of making a meaning and making money, this is where like being a student or going into education in this world is different from when we went to college and as in like people need to go out and earn money straight away um and that's not are you saying now more so i i don't know i feel you're talking about the price of education changing yeah yeah yeah. but also like people i know education like being able to work on one thing during the day and working on something else in the evening is not unusual now um and those are skills you have to have and maybe when we were at college, we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into <laughs> when we left. You're just figuring it out on your own or with others, your other peers, and you're hoping that you can start something together, um, which is what I was doing when I graduated. I, I sort of tinkered away on different projects with different types of people just to see what would happen. Um, but then we ended up 
tinkering away on projects together and seeing what happens. It's ended mm. up just tinkering with my husband's uh, as <laughs> part of our projects evolved. Yeah. Do you have any you know insights from your experiences as to yeah I guess how you do that balance um, or what you've learned about that balance that is um, that you found helpful or maybe things that you wish you had understood more completely when you were either going in or through school or mm-hmm. trying to imagine what life would be like subsequently because I, I i really you said um <laughs> you got this. yeah you said you said uh that you felt or somehow you used the word unemployable and i started i used that a couple times like last year and then i kind of quieted it down in my own psyche because i was like if you keep saying that you you're gonna believe it. that yeah <laughs> and that'll be sad yeah, I, I think that it's, it's funny. We were just listening to um, the podcast you did with Anab, Jane, and, uh, and she mentioned the same word. But you've and said it, it so many times. To I've me. said it so many times <laughs> because I first heard it when uh, my professor at the RCA, Ron Arad, said it. And I, I don't know if he was the originator of saying it in the context of, of the RCA, but uh, certainly. I think uh, as Anab was explaining, you know, he was using it in this context of really saying that people leave wanting to work for themselves, and which is not really the same thing as being unemployable, obviously, because what he's really saying is that, uh, you know, you, you leave actually with a kind of sense of direction and a sense of purpose and a uniqueness to your practice that is actually very marketable, um, but it, it's just a different thing from wanting, you know, leaving thinking, okay, I'm going to go work for XYZ consultancy or big corporation. So I think it was more about that sense of, of actually taking students through this process uh, of realizing that they really can produce something fascinating and, and unique and go out and be their own boss and that that was a possibility and you were seeing that in in a lot of the faculty who were teaching there obviously they they had a a teaching job but they were most of them were part-time and most of them had a really exciting gig outside of uh, school Hmm. Um, so it was very inspiring i think to be there and see those people operating and thinking oh maybe this could be me in five years or so yeah, and they were working with peers and friends or your immediate network of people. It's the people you've just met and you've gone through hell together. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's a natural bonding experience and it's a natural feeling like, uh, let's try and do more of this. How do we do more of that? So that, that's the kind of feeling yeah. I got from college and probably you as well. Yeah, and you tried to extend that after college by setting up this Alter Futures group. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of extended kind of critique session. Yeah, it was a really fun meetup with a few others and we had a space, in, like a loft space where I was working in, um, in London. And we were like, we need a space where we can have this kind of work in progress discussion with our peers still after school like after college what do you what happens to all those opportunities to have conversations about your work in progress 
Um, so we wanted to use this kind of place, this loft space as a once a month gathering. And I came up with the word Alter Futures and then my friend Tom said, yes, we're really interested in the future of church altars. This is him being very sarcastic, Tom. And then the other two friends, Daisy Ginsburg and James King, we all got together and said, let's just do it and see what happens. And it was a really fun opportunity to meet up still. Sure. And now it's, I think it's ebbed and flowed over the years. People have taken on the the responsibility of it. Um, and oh yeah. I mean, I think that's in terms of insights and things that uh, uh, are kind of useful to pass on. I think that's maintaining that uh, kind of peer group uh, after college. You know, it's just so important. Yeah. And then obviously the peer group, you know, can include your your professors as well. And I think you know you uh, you've stayed in touch with your professors over the years and. Uh, and it's been great to, to see what they do as well. But uh, I think you know, I, that's something I try to pass on to students that I'm teaching that, that uh, you know, the group that you have around you are, are so important to your own development. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that you, you kind of uh, nurture that once mm. you leave, I think is, is so important. What other great insights do we have to share? <laughs> yes, a... I mean, I think I've actually always kind of struggled with that issue because I went into academia pretty much straight away after my graduate program. And mm-hmm. partly because I had the same kind of experience that Jess was talking about where you feel like your your brain is being completely like reformulated. Uh, I mean, for me, you know, my industrial design undergraduate program was very commercially focused. And the RCA just sort of made me realize that the world of design was so much broader than that. Um, and the structure of the program helped to, to show that by having all these different groups that you could go into who were really working very differently. And um, so I wanted to share that experience to undergrads to say, hey, you know, you don't have to just go and you know work for uh company making vacuum cleaners or whatever if you don't want to uh, you know there's this big wide world out there and you can start things yourself and you know, it's very exciting to try and launch your own product which is what I did once I, I graduated and um, but then I, I sort of got quite entrenched into academia in terms of you know I ended up with a full-time job and I was running my own studio as well on, on you know but it's uh, um, I never got to that point where I sort of took that leap of saying, right, the studio is the full-time thing. Mm. I was always kind of um, doing a bit of both. Uh, and so I think sometimes, uh, you know, life can kind of end up with this situation where um, someone needs to take a risk. And I never had to take that risk of saying, all right, I'm just going to put all my eggs in, in the studio basket and, and just go for it. But of course, that oftentimes uh, can really work out. You know, you can... Yeah, but also you got really interested and in, in very good at sharing knowledge and being a practitioner in the sort of teaching academic side as well. Yeah, I mean, I had the chance to write a book about uh, the work um, that I'd seen over the years to try to sort of map the territory for undergraduates. Uh, 
So that ended up being this book called Thinking Objects. Um, and I was able to turn that into an online course just recently, which is fun, funnily enough, uh, the title of it is Making Meaning. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, an introduction <laughs> to designing objects. Um, but um, yeah, I think I, I sort of, I did enjoy that that work I don't, and I do enjoy that work, absolutely. Um, but I, I just think in terms of, uh, um, so uh, setting up studios and yeah. thinking about um, advising people. Yeah, it's... from now I think I would I would advise graduates that I think teaching can be absolutely wonderful for feeding your mind. You know, you get to have so many amazing conversations, meet so many great people through doing it. Um, but if if your main ambition is to run your own studio practice then you have to feed that and you have yeah. to make sure you pursue it mm. yeah i think that's something that we ended up working together more because we found the opportunity to do so in chicago just because of the way that our visas were working and the way that we were sort of i, I couldn't work in a traditional way for quite a while so anyway it meant that we sort of i was in this kind of spouse visa situation where I couldn't earn money officially. So I was starting to do my own work in practice, really. But then that sort of, that meant where we, we started to get invited to do things in Chicago and that sort of helped us start thinking, what if we could actually just get on with the studio thing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah. And just go and try and experiment with ways that we work, that might work together how they were set how we were separately and then how we we've combined our interests together there there are like two things that i'm hearing one is the there's something about commitment and confidence just having that you know you called it like taking the risk or feeling like the you know that this is what i i must and need do um and then the other aspect of that, which I've I've come to appreciate a lot more, um, I guess, like later in my professional life, is the importance of community, yeah. and even in particular, um, you know, getting on the the creation end of that community. Like, I'm going to build this. I'm going to create. You re mentioned like the uh, the externalized kind of critique <laughs> yeah, facilitation yeah. thing, which is beautiful, <laughs> and just bringing those. The, the 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 wonderful aspects of the education experience the things that that motivate people or mm -hmm. you know create this desire like i want to be a part of this and in a in a kind of naive way i always looked at academia as like great that's going to give me some time to do what i want to do and it's going to cost me a little bit of money so I'll find a state school or whatever but that's what right. the exchange was it's it's uh you know like um yeah essentially being able to a certain degree like fashion your life and the things you want to do and the projects you want to do and supposedly in academia people aren't supposed to tell you what not to do you just you, you pursue it do do you do your thing and so you know i i think taking those aspects of the of those uh those kind of frameworks and carrying them with you like maybe that's the most important lesson like i've started this general seminar thing directly related to seminar when I was in grad school, which is, that was the place where like really you made meaning. 
you sat around with something scratching your head and like, who is this Derrida guy? I have no idea. <laughs> at the end of like six months, you're kind of like a little bit of a handle <laughs> because you're having conversations yeah. with people. That's how it happens. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's really special. And it's, it's something that we can't not take for granted at all is having conversations with people mm. and also having conversations with people that may disagree with each other or or don't have the same background or have the same opinions necessarily but we're all willing to be on this sort of sharing techniques of something or sharing ideas or sharing sort of a process when you're very much at your vulnerable stage you know that was one of the things that Zolta Features was about is the vulnerable bit when you're still figuring stuff out and you don't know anything and you want support or help or thoughts or feedback without feeling like your soul or your your enthusiasm or your ego is crushed too much right. uh, <laughs> like the safe place yeah that's the yeah. right word yeah it was like that i mean you know college and critiques you know people were weeping all the time at college yes it is hardcore terrible <laughs> but it was really made you set up for life because you mm. would be able to cope i mean this is a different time <laughs> yeah you couldn't get away with that now no there's no none of that it was hardcore, but it was very special. Yeah, everyone did spectacular this week. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it has to be diplomacy, doesn't it? Yeah. It has to, and you have to, yeah. It's important. Like Amazing. You, you Who to... cares about kerning anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I never had to worry about that directly. But yeah, I think you need safe space, and, and schools are one way of doing that. But post-school, yeah, you need, like a general seminar, you need... You need more folks that you do get on or don't get on, but you'll have something you're striving for, perhaps. Yeah. And no one owns one thing, owns one method over another. Um, everyone's finding their own route, especially with the sort of the way that we think about design and features and storytelling and object making now. It's it's a lot more open, perhaps, and so everyone's it's a lot more plural, perhaps. I hope I hope think it is, and everyone's like. It got a technique you know it's like mm. an oil painting or a, like being a painter you have many techniques and not that i'd ever associate myself with being a painter but there's a way of being doing painting that's vast and historically different <laughs> <laughs> chewie is leaning on jess's shoulder Chewie's really yeah. he's Chewie. just staring at me he's kind of like i don't know this might be better <laughs> <laughs> Chicago yeah. sounds fine. Oh no, it's chilly. <laughs> it's not the right fur though. That's right. I think yeah, she was like picking up on some vibe. I think so. It's yeah, good it's vibe. Very intuitive puppy. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, was I saying something really important? Oh, very. <laughs> but yeah, uh, having a peer group is so valuable. We all know that, but it's and but maybe we're losing some of that sometimes when we're especially because of COVID, but also we lose it because we think it exists through social media interactions. Perhaps mm. I, I don't know if, if yeah. we think we're doing it, but it's all not happening. The expectation of some kind of response from a Instagram post or which is drug fuel. It's just wrong. 
Dopamine, you mean? The dopamine, the neurotransmitters being pumped across, but it's not real, really. I mean, it is, but it isn't. But the, the connection is it can be real. That's a good starting point. That's how I met you. <laughs> That's right. Online. But I think, I think, uh, yeah, it is uh, important to distinguish between these uh, sort of minute interactions that perhaps ultimately are not very meaningful and those more meaningful connections that you would have by actually um, calling someone on the phone or meeting them in person mm -hmm. and, and having a real discussion about things. I mean, it's difficult. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been talked about way too much, obviously. But, you know, I think, right, the, you know, I realized pretty early on with Twitter that, you know, I was, I was very excited about the idea of having a platform for debate but there's, then you, you realize that actually, you know, you can't really say what you want to say in 140 characters. There's no room for nuance or it's very difficult to be nuanced. And so, uh, you know, it ultimately just proved very frustrating to try to have that. You know, I knew some friends who lived the other side of the world, literally, down in uh, um New Zealand and I would oh, love yeah. to have these little uh you know debates with them on on Twitter but in the end it just you know it was all sort of friendly but it just never went anywhere mm. it was, you you'd, you'd hit these kind of walls with it so and I think yeah the same thing is happening with uh you know friends on Facebook and and Instagram it's I think you you have to come to terms with how you want to use those things um and uh, and then I think you can have a more healthy relationship with them. But um, hopefully, yeah. I certainly found that that uh, you know it was it's problematic to think that it's really replacing anything yeah. um, more meaningful that we had in the past. Yeah, um, I didn't mean to go down that route, but <laughs> <laughs> we just ended up there. But, yeah. I think, I mean, we're very lucky right now that we can actually be here in real life, in person, like face to face with someone we've never met before, but we have we have met through other people mm. online, etc. And that's just very special. Uh, very, it's a very unique experience. And I think we're very, uh, it's sad to feel it's a very unusual thing, but it's, very, it's a very unique, good thing, I hope. You, know, you make these new friendships and new connections more easily, perhaps. But you, sometimes you need that other connections through online to get there. Yeah, maybe it starts that way. Maybe that's where you you, you find the um, people who are interested in similar things, and then yeah. you can turn it into something more yeah. meaningful. Absolutely. Yeah. So that so it's like to use uh, industry words, is it like a discovery mechanism? Maybe. Elaborate, Julian. <laughs> <laughs> well, where my head went was, so when you said it's, it's unique and special to meet someone face-to-face -face that you haven't met before, and I guess my head went... Like how else, how would we have met back in the day and would have been, how much, how diff, how, how more different would it have been? Like would we have met at, you know, whatever, 
something Milan furniture fair maybe or, like or through just like other friends perhaps yeah. if we were coming into town or not anyway um perhaps i think in, i mean taking that as an example yeah. you're let's say you're at, at a event in milan and and you know nick introduces us to you we're immediately in a situation where we can start talking about something mm. and get into subjects and um share opinions and you know you you have a, a rich dialogue potentially straight off the bat uh whereas now <laughs> it seems like everything is kind of okay you, you might see you might see that you've posted something interesting on instagram or we see that someone else follows you who we know and we're like oh okay uh but i don't write to you i don't say hey what do you think about that piece of work that we just saw or yeah. you know there's uh, well, maybe it, it, people it do just, but we don't do it <laughs> yeah so i don't know if there was that kind of super fleeting um kind of rather distant contact um, to, yeah with people in the past but not to say it's bad it's just a di it's just yeah it's not the only way perhaps just thinking now like that's what the podcast has become just concept <laughs> you know reflecting on it it's like they're people who i would like to talk to i want to be associated with i want to share with them my enthusiasm for what they're doing and then this becomes like a kind of platform, another way of, um, you know, community building or whatever, gathering people around ideas, hopefully contributing something. Yeah, I see that's a very lovely segue of actually meeting people that you would never have met perhaps in a, a real life situation. Absolutely. It is really a great way of you know, writing a report to get on into an, a cockpit. It's a very similar uh, approach. And I think that is, that's the good side. That's the really exciting bit is that kind of uh, social interaction mm. online. I think that's a real great example of when it works and there's a sharing component that is genuinely deep, perhaps, or uh, full range, is a full range opportunity to have a conversation about different things that you might not have had if you just did it very small on in a different way through another media social media platform that's exciting <laughs> <laughs> i think um i think yeah i think being able to do this with you now is something that is really unusual for us because we've never met you but it is feels like we're having just a a, a chat in a bar slash cafe maybe um but there's a dog wrapped around my neck <laughs> it's a slightly different experience yeah <laughs> i think one thing that i think is interesting that that i think you and nick and the two of us came up with uh, a very similar project oh, at, a, shit, yeah. at, at a similar time what was that uh, which what? is that when we started working on our, uh, the first iteration of our catalog for the post-human project which originated as uh, part of a commission from Open Society Foundations who were doing this big study about the future of work. Mm. And we did this kind of two-part project for them, one which was a research document about uh, human enhancement technologies, and the second was this uh, uh, PDF of uh, <laughs> fictional products uh, that were about human enhancement uh, and the future of work. Um, and um, shortly after, or around about the same oh, yeah, time, I can't remember. Uh, 
you did the the TBD book, is that right? TBD catalog, yeah. Catalog, that's yeah. right. I yeah. remember seeing that. It, it, it felt like the same <laughs> same magic was happening across yeah. the <laughs> I know, it was really wild. I think, yeah, that was in 2014, and we, we were... I can't remember how that happened. I can probably, yeah. like, just in my head as you're describing it and just thinking back to the moment, I can probably draw a couple of lines. Um, so I was... I, I can't remember, remember how I first came across my Wadenki. Yeah. And it might have been, oh, yeah. it was a time when I was like going to um, Japan, to Tokyo, fairly often. There was like, a, you know, a workshop or a conference um, and came across his work. And I've got a bunch of his books and stuff. And I was just like, the, the whole conceit, <laughs> you know, the from the the jumpsuits to the the backstory of what was it like NATO Industries or something like that. Yeah. I was just like, oh and <laughs> he had these um in one of the books is uh is like a picture of the factory, but it's all like that bad um macro photography. But it's like a model clearly, like probably kit bashed a bunch of stuff and and I was just like oh my heart this is amazing so beautiful and and then it's full of products and i was especially intrigued because um many if not all the products were they were made you know you could get them they blister packed and it was these peculiar um objects as you guys know and it was also a time when i was so i was at usc professor usc and i'm creating uh, I'm, I'm teaching like mobile media, interactive media, you know, like electronics in that realm. Arduino is like on its ascendancy. And so we're doing a lot of building these things. And I just wanted to wrap them in stories as opposed to we're working on the blinking LED project this week or we're blinking <laughs> on working on getting an Arduino to talk to processing through your. So creating these fictional contexts in which these things mm. just made it you know usc uh school of cinematic arts visual storytelling let's let's create stories around these things and practice that as well and then you know my kind of background as an electrical engineer i was like i wanted to make things that are richer and maybe more um involved and i just imagine it's like you know these could be actual products as orthogonal as they are to sensical <laughs> you know the almost the better like these things that just kind of pushed and prodded and that was around the time when you know with all this material and then when i got to nokia uh there were opportunities to make these things not not at a massive scale but like do one and two offs with a level of refinement that i couldn't do myself so I've now access to like a model shop model making shop and you know you know the 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 model makers favorite scotch and you can get some work done that kind of thing and it just became uh it just became fascinated by that and then the idea of doing it as uh as a kind of more thorough design fiction exercise and just having this idea of what design fiction could be and just wanting to run it through like no idea what's going to happen but what would happen if you got a bunch of people in a room 
and said, here's the brief. We're going to make products from the future. And if you get the right people or not the right, you know, just like people who are like, aren't going to say like, I don't get it. Who are just kind of like, <laughs> fuck yeah. Yes. Detroit people on their own dime flying to Detroit to participate in this three day wacky invention of let's make some products from the future and actually do it. That's right. Yeah. That is really funny. I, li- I like that connection. I definitely, I remember when Tony introduced us to Mayra Denkin, actually the the main member came to visit college uh, to, for the day. It was, it was a wild day and he got us to do a workshop and he would take mm. us through a process and it was like, what's the first thing you touch when you wake up in the morning was one of the first questions of this process. And then there were supplementary questions and that was the nonsense machine that you created as in was in response to these kind of questions that he gave us. Um, I remember just thinking this is just so, is this real or not? I was just constantly loving that question. And that is probably what fed also into this mad catalog that we started making. It was, we were very much inspired by when we moved to the US, the Sky Mall catalog. Oh yeah, which totally. it's just so unusual format to to have in a domestic flight experience. <laughs> yeah, and I think that was where we sort of got really inspired with the sort of absurdity of the language and the different range of objects that might exist. That's right, because they don't have anything quite like that in the UK. There used to be this thing called, uh, um, called the Innovations Catalog, uh, which would come through <laughs> yeah. your door in, in England. And um, it was kind of similar. It had a range of products, but there wasn't anything quite as absurd as the sort of things you'd get in, in SkyMail. You know, like, like a zombie a coming little, out of the garden? Yeah, or a little, I mean, you know, little sets of steps to... For your dog to come up onto the couch or yeah. uh you know i mean those are not even great examples but i think it was the contrast though between the absurd thing in on the page next to the, the totally rational thing of course you'd want that and, and so that made us think okay well this this catalog format is actually so great because it is not curated by a professional in in the way that uh, you know a, a design exhibition would be curated. No one's has pre-approved all of this. It, it's just like yeah, that that might sell. Um, <laughs> and so I think when thinking about the future, you, you're trying to get people into that idea space of like, what is this thing, and why would I want that, or who would want that, or and more specifically, what does it say about what the future is going to look like uh, if people are using something like that. I think that's where, uh, for our project in particular, you know, we wanted people to be able to to kind of think, well, what if people are having to enhance themselves physically? What if they're having to, to wear some strange device or take some uh, strange pharmaceuticals uh, to uh, help them actually work at the level that they're expected to work at? Um, to stay competitive um, and so the the catalog version was the first sort of iteration of that and then it's, it's kind of moved on uh, to be a vending machine and now a, a, a sort of trade fair stand that we've done in, in Venice. <laughs> yeah the universe has grown <laughs> like the TBD catalog is growing I feel like our universe of the catalog for the post human is growing in scale 
as in like we try out things and see what happens and then people ask us to do something and then we're like well maybe we should just up the scale <laughs> we'll go from a pdf that lives in my computer that wasn't ever printed into a sort of a an immersive installation uh, where people aren't sure there is no filter necessarily they're not sure if they're in a space that's a real company or not it's a, are these products real and does it make me think whether i want them oh yeah i want them oh no but do i really or maybe i'm already enhanced and, and i already want to be the ultimate efficient highly productive uh entity uh, maybe i need to do more of that but i want we wanted those conversations to happen um i'm hoping that's what's been happening i feel like in the conversations we have had with people that has happened um but yeah, I think it's really lovely that we were sort of we're all thinking these interesting methods and and approaches uh, to sort of get us all into a space, or at least other people into a space of questioning. Yeah. So I know, like, we get the uh, the motivation for these things, and we're, and we're and sometimes I mean, to a certain degree, I'm trying to understand my intuition for doing these things. And then, you know, at the same time, trying to ground it to say, this is why for the because the, you know, the question that I'll sometimes get that like an earlier version of me, it just made me want to throw up forever when someone's like, so what? <laughs> Seems like a waste of time. Why, why are you bothering? It's not going to be real. How do you respond to that yourself? Maybe maybe it's a question that comes up. So I get in the context of like a you know, a um, sort of more cultural event, it's like, great, this is provocation and people, it's interesting and it'll make people smile and wonder and that's what our goal is. You talk to the vacuum cleaner guy, Mr. Dyson, and he's like, come on, why would I cut you a check to work on something that I'm never going to make? I don't understand. Maybe they'll get some insight into what huge impacts that they're products are having in the world before they do it perhaps i mean is that what they want to know i don't know but they maybe are thinking now should we be thinking further down the line before we throw this out into the world or not yeah. i don't know i'm being provocative just to, yeah you know, i think yeah. it's a really difficult space for anyone who runs a company i'm not really, i think Culturally, it's a really important thing to have these conversations and there's many conversations that need to be having. Yeah, I think the open-minded uh, corporate leader is someone who uh, needs to be open to critique of what they do. I suspect that very few of them have imagined that might come through uh, seeing an installation <laughs> yeah. or seeing yeah. a critical ca catalogue of products. It's just not... Uh, uh, a form that has been out there in the world for very long uh, it's very niche but I think that actually it could be very powerful because artists and designers are able to say things through images and objects that uh, you really can't say effectively through a, a report or a piece of management consultancy someone literally walking into a space and, and seeing a kind of enactment of a, a future store with a, a number of objects on it 
and reading descriptions, there's just so much information within that experience uh, that they could take away within a, like a five or 10 minute window that I think, um, to me, that's that's the power of it. It's like that, if that that could be applied more effectively, um, you know, in in a way that uh, um, is digestible um, to people who are making these uh, decisions. Uh, yeah, but we also have to point out we also just like being able to be practitioners of of things. You know, we don't necessarily. We have an underlying reason why we're doing what we're doing, especially for this project. Um, and we probably overly obsess about every single detail of the thing that we're putting out there to put in front of people's eyeballs, in front of people's faces. But we also like that process. You know, we like that. Uh, we're becoming these kind of fictional designers for a universe that we've made up because <laughs> we can control it ourselves, but also, we want to know if people, uh, what I'm trying to say is we're not necessarily always going to be explaining everything to everybody whenever we put something out there because you don't have, it's just making stuff. It's also, it's a form of cultural, visual culture that's being produced that we don't have to always argue for it, if that's what, that's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. No one's arguing why they should be making donuts. <laughs> or painting pictures or painting pictures matter. or you know yeah. making a film there's lots of reasons why those practitioners are doing it and they're really important ones but we're not questioning whether they should exist and whether we put in front of people um yeah no i agree and i think uh, yeah i don't want to uh, suggest that uh, this kind of work always has to be an instrument i mean but i think that it actually has the potential to be an instrument of change in a way that it hasn't been so far. Oh yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. But I agree. I don't think that should always be necessarily um, uh, the criteria for doing it, or not all work in this territory. I think should be judged on, you know, whether or not it should exist. It is, has changed X number of people's yeah. minds about something. Right. What's the ROI of my psychological neural network change? I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not, I can't. This is what we're make you know we're fabricators i don't know yeah for, so just for <laughs> just because it's kind of funny to imagine could you with with your approach and your sensibility and your kind of consciousness around these things could you explain the roi for any particular you know effort or project or yeah how would you how would you what oh, terms would you put us yeah if you, if you went what's our if you went, <laughs> if, well, if you went all the way down that rabbit hole where it's like okay you're making a product catalog that's an archetype people recognize um and it you know has all the characteristics of a product catalog maybe even to the point where people are like huh this is weird where where this where'd you find this <laughs> was that the was from the guy at the corner or where can i buy these um and if you kept going down like let's say instead of doing a product catalog you did something that was that would have an ROI attached to it or part of the appendix. You do a um, a report and the report is meant to express also an ROI. Like what, what are the, how would you, what am I trying to say? 
what what is your ROI? If you yeah. were to use those terms, I understand that you don't want to because it's no, not a particular. It's just um, a phrase that we all hear. I mean, like, yeah. that like medical he, that medical person. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like who's uh, who is doing the investing. And what does investment <laughs> and, look like? And because it's like, uh, I mean, in terms here's of, what you're going to get out of this work. Yeah, you know, to and let's say it, I'm I'm leaning more mm. towards the the maybe slightly more commercial client as opposed to the art commission. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, like, in the context of the catalogue for the post-human, the client has been the cultural institution, like you said. But if it wasn't, like the Open Society Foundations was one of the initial clients, and they were just adding it to their big collection of future of work studies, and they were commissioning artists. So I don't know what the after effects of that catalogue was for them but for us it helped create an investment in like building upon our portfolio of doing more but if we were to do like this project for a client like that medical person what, should we talk about that no <laughs> <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm only reticent uh because you know this was something that uh just a, a friend just just mentioned that you know, they had told uh, someone who works for a medical company and about our exhibit and that this person kind of got excited about it and then went to see it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not, there's, not, there's nothing kind of secret about it, but I just, uh, you know, oh, yeah. I think Same. it's kind of their business. <laughs> just, they want to see in, it. It's interesting, you know, despite the, sp mm. the specifics, uh, you know, if there are any, it's just that there's that, that's, that circulation sounds really fascinating that, Someone saw it, and there, there's someone in the medical industry who who got excited right. and wanted to go see it, mm -hmm. and then probably, you know, let, I'm just going to fictionalize because I know nothing, but just mm -hmm. be like, I, I really want to talk to you guys. Can I buy you a coffee? Mm -hmm. And they they might even be like, I have no idea why I want to talk to you, but I find what you did really provocative, and then you would find out through that mm. conversation what it is that they need to satisfy whatever that kind of curiosity and excitement mm. sparked. Yeah. That's and right. for them, the return on investment might be that, um, you know, like some modest expanded consciousness out of a, you know, a bit of work that you guys do for them that becomes like a totem that sits on, Mm. their their desk or or a, a report that they're like could you print out 500 of these i want to send them through the organization yeah that, right. that would be amazing yeah i mean i think it's that, <laughs> Make, that kind of small change of consciousness is, is in a way you know that i think that's one of the main reasons why we're doing it there is a, a critique within the work we we are doing a lot of research beforehand about how companies operate in the world, uh, what kind of research is going on in, in various labs about different kinds of technologies. And we're trying to synthesize that into ideas. Um, and so embedded in that is this notion of uh, what should and shouldn't be made in the mm. future and, and how, um, you know, what kind of corporate behavior is, is uh, positive and what isn't. So yeah, it, I, I think that's why I'm quite excited about the idea that someone who is involved in making those decisions for real out in the world may be 
influenced by it, um, even if that is is not terribly likely. Um, the idea that it might happen, I think, is interesting. Yeah, in like pursuing any kind of drive for creation is the sort of main reason for my living. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you want to try and test out new ideas for making ideas look visual. Um, that's my drive, and mm. it's not always possible to fund that. But also, yeah, I, it's a really for us. I think we're sort of still evolving our practice, but you know, we really enjoy like the craft of thinking about how the ideas get there, but also how the making of that happens, and and what kind of idea, what kind of thought processes are happening when people are encountering any of this stuff. A small philosophical impact, or is amazing uh, but also it's just like any sort of visual material that you just don't know what it's going to do yeah um and having a conversation like this is a huge roi for us it's just having a conversation and yeah yeah developing also yeah ideas around the practice i mean i'm sure when you did uh tvd after a while you really get a strong sense of what the cr uh, criteria are for a good fictional product and you know, we had that process ourselves and we kind of got it down to like four things that each one of these products needed to to have uh, you know it needed to be relevant in general uh, the subject matter needs to be relevant um, to now uh, it needed to have a kind of critique behind it and so there, there needed to be something that we were actually driving at like what is uh, is it about this uh, particular subject that we can comment on? Um, it also had to be uh, kind of um, plausible, obviously, to the audience. If it was too far flung and too crazy, it would just be like, no, that's not going to happen. So, but that's when we I come then, in. <laughs> I interrupted you. And then going. the last one was that it had to be feasible to actually make. So it couldn't be outside of what we were able to afford or just not physically produce. So those were the, yeah. the kind of four kind of uh, criteria, sort of elements that we would constantly argue about uh, yeah. throughout like this that. whole project. Multiple <laughs> disagreements, but through Venn diagrams and me adding notes and you rubbing it out and going, no, no, that's this one. But it was not directly like pre-planned. This is like an evolution oh, of yeah. thinking. Absolutely. And that's yeah. when we would make these arguments of like, can we, how far out can we talk about, you know, this certain type of technology? Is it even feasible to make it visual and tangible? Is it just another app in the future? Um, so, yeah, we had a lot of these kind of difficult questions that when is it something that could be physical that makes sense? And how is this technology even able to be discussed easily in the, or not? Whatever the kind of weird technology it was that we we're learning about. Yeah. It strikes me as you're describing, you know, your ver your approaches and your experiences to these projects that, and with my ROI question, <laughs> um, I've just been stuck on the idea that that what we're doing is we're trying to find ways to uh, almost like reinvigorate the imagination, the ability to imagine things you know otherwise or alternatives and maybe doing those things um it, routinely and i think you know without this you know with all humility for 
all creators, that's part of what we are particularly drawn to for better or worse. I mean, it's not like it makes us better, you know, very well paid, you know, whatever. It's almost like, I wish I had less of an imagination. <laughs> just, you know, it was just a, a very well paid uh, accountant or something. Yeah. But I think, and, and for me now, I maybe at this point in my professional career, like I, I'm highly motivated to, yeah, I mean, both do the work, but also almost in part that as the, as, as the thing to focus on what you're actually doing and the thing that hurts and makes it difficult to do is you using this, this, you know, this, this muscle or this, this, this corner of this crazy vascularized hunk of meat in our head that isn't well developed, despite the fact that, you know, if you believe the whoever's, you know, human beings are uniquely ability, you know, to imagine the world differently and create their environments and this kind of stuff. It's like we do a horrible job of it because we can't imagine other than what we've been kind of wrote, taught to do. And I think it has to do with the fact, you know, it's just like an education thing. There is no track in, you know, primary education, secondary school on up. That's like, mm. oh, I'm going to imagination. Oh, is that in room 105? Yeah, <laughs> it is. Are you taking AP imagination? Ooh, wow, tough one. You know, it just doesn't exist. It, it, it's it's a. Uh... I would I would go there right now. I would go to that class. Yeah. It would be so fun if we could. Yeah, I think, that's I think you are. Point. I think you do. Like, you spend your time in the class to a certain degree, you know. <laughs> and as part, of, I guess what I'm saying is like, I, you know, I wish other people. I wish. I wish there was. I just wish it happened. Yeah, yeah. I think we take it for granted that that isn't something that everyone hasn't already done, um, because it isn't. Not everyone has that opportunity, but also not everyone is able to, unless they are a child, maybe as a child maybe you're automatically in the imagination room 24 7 um, totally agree. until you're drummed out of the imagination room they drag you out yeah and throw you into the hard maths and chemistry yeah stop room. doing that that doesn't look like a drawing of a dinosaur here's how you draw a dinosaur yeah that's when the codified world yeah. comes in and yeah wants you to tick the boxes and which is fine you maybe need to do that in order to get to this other stage but yeah, I think that's a really, it's a really fascinating proposition. Is this education is the hardest globally? It must be the most difficult time when that imagination zone time is evolved and drummed out of you for certain different reasons because of society's needs. Yeah. I suppose I, I mean, I haven't not thought about this thoroughly. It's just kind of like musings. But the, I, I think it's not that. Only people who are going to become what we understand today as like uh, creative cultural producers, like artists, have to take AP imagining. <laughs> Why wouldn't someone who's like on a more, you know, what we think of as a grounded trajectory, I'm going to be an engineer or I'm going to be a business leader or, you know, a fighter pilot. Like, why wouldn't they need that ability to just imagine alternatives Absolutely. and other possibilities in the kind of mode of either innovation or resilience responding to unexpected circumstances, you know, even even in a, at a quite high level, not just kind of like yeah. strategic, but like my environment and my context for survival has changed this second right now. 
Should I freak out and start screaming or should I be like, right, shelter. Let me figure that out. Food, you know, whatever. Yeah. Just making stuff up. No, maybe that's why people sign up to do that naked and afraid show because they, they've stepped out of, they've got an opportunity to step out of their everyday life and they're like, let me apply to do this mad imagination safari right now. <laughs> I happen to be naked doing it. I don't know why I need to be, but that is the imagination time yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, that was a bit of a left field reference, but I, <laughs> I do things. I love the idea that there is, like people must be doing that. There's like being able to like, it's another ability that we need all of us to and have and being able to have that creative output and outlet is probably also really good for mental health and just getting on through the day. Mm -hmm. You need that imagination component, maybe more than you realize. Um, and yeah, if an accountant can do it as well. Imaginative accounting is probably a bit dangerous. But. <laughs> well, there's plenty of that probably going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think I think it's an amazing concept is that we are needing to do imagination studies. Like it's almost like a driving test and you have to update it every certain length of time. So maybe every few years, everyone has to go and do it. Mm. Like it's a it's a socially supported government plan. I don't know, not a government plan, but it's part of living. Yeah. And being a citizen. Yeah. <laughs> should we talk about some of your work? Sure. Yeah. 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 What should we talk about? Well, uh, I don't know. We've mentioned Venice already. Yeah. That's been the most recent thing. Uh, you know, maybe maybe des describe that sure yeah so um, we were asked to participate in the Venice Architecture Biennale which was originally supposed to take place in 2020 in May but because of the pandemic it got pushed back a whole calendar year and uh, opened May this year and uh, the curator of the Biennale is Hashim Sarkis, who's the Dean of Architecture at MIT. And he came up with this theme um, called How Will We Live Together? And he split up the Biennale main exhibition uh, into uh, scales, starting at the scale of the body, going through the scale of the planet. And all of the participants were asked to respond to that theme within a particular scale. And we were asked to respond at this sort of scale of the body and to propose uh, an installation for the Arsenale building. And um, after we had a chance to discuss it, we realized that we really wanted to extend this catalog for the post-human project that we had just finished uh, the kind of vending machine iteration of uh, the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Um, and um, I think, you know, for us, you know, the idea, even though that project wasn't specifically sort of only about the body, uh, the, uh, the kind of challenge of making either wearable objects or, or pieces of design that, that were specifically body related, uh, I think that was kind of a nice challenge. And then the, the scale allowed us to 
to just think much bigger and think well okay what would it, what would it be like if you were if this was like consumer electronics show or something and you were walking into this trade fair booth uh, how rather than just having one object in, in a vending machine what else could we do uh, how we so we ended up producing this uh, installation which has uh, uh, sort of four kind of units four sets of products and in each of these units uh, there is uh, um, an animation which shows how those products would be used and this animation is really sort of it's not very didactic it's actually more meant it's, it's as if you were you'd bought these products and they came with some kind of app and and you're constantly seeing sort of notifications about when you should use this product how to use it what consumables you need to buy to to keep this product uh, going etc etc um and so it's it's very kind of um uh, visually kind of stimulating if you like the the, the uh, exhibit itself because you've got the objects and then you've got all of this uh, um, kind of visual information coming at you and it's also coming at you in, at a t in Italian as well as English um, <laughs> but you know for us it's been a kind of 18 month project very intense an awful lot of making an awful lot of uh, discovering that we can we don't know <laughs> about how to make certain things and and are out of our depth and, and having to go and find people who can help us um but uh yeah that's it been, was very rewarding yeah. i think particularly during the pandemic to have such a kind of intense mm. project uh, to work on yeah that kept us going especially through minus t i don't know 10 20 centigrade weather in chicago in the snow it's like, sure. It's a good outlet to go into the studio and just get into the zone of it. Um, and it was a really fascinating sort of process. We we wanted to try and push ourselves to think about s scale. How can we create something that's even bigger than we've done before? Um, and also we thought about multiple, di multiple different layers of access. So there's the objects that you see in person. There's these sort of digital monitor sort of overload of information. There's like an LED sign and there's a QR code, which I love that QR codes now are like, <laughs> like my mum was like, what is a QR code? Just help me. And like, how do I use it to go to the restaurants? Anyway, it became a QR code is like the de facto normal thing now. Yeah, it's normal. And I in, thought they were going to die. I thought. It's like it took a pandemic for people to be like, uh, Especially perfect. in this country. In China, they were used a lot more, I That's think, right. in Japan. But yeah, so we use the QR code as this access point to the object takes you to a website to the world the universe the catalog for the post-human universe so if you don't see the objects in real life you get to <laughs> interpret them and read about them and read the marketing text and sort of it's like a retail universe mm -hmm. so there's that other layer so we thought about all these different things um so it was quite a challenge for us to sort of get our heads around this kind of ecosystem of the catalog for the post-human but that is why we, you know, we do it in order to be challenged and to know that this is a whole new space and we get to work with people we haven't worked with before. We work with some really great graphic, a great graphic designer called Michael Savona, who we share a studio with, and this other group, our studio, H-O-U-R studio, and they built the website with us. And then we get to make, get to work with, um, the, yeah, uh, yeah, get sure. to work with this great group called Candy Coated Kink. 
who are an incredible uh, inflatable PVC kinkware company in Alabama. <laughs> Fantastic. In Alabama. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Right? Um, really incredible people. Um, they made this piece Thank you. called Ivy Apparel, uh, which is this jacket and it has a, an IV in it, and which is kind of above your, your head. Uh, and uh, the kind of idea is about, uh, uh, you know, how what if you needed to, you couldn't even stop for lunch, you, you know, you, you had to work constantly and you, to the extent where you were using IV bags to, to give yourself sufficient oh, right. nutrition. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of extreme, slightly dystopian proposition. Um, but yeah, I, I thought we should maybe explain one or two of the other objects mm -hmm. uh, in, in the show. I mean, there's the, the, the four kind of areas are all slightly different themes. And um, the first one is like that cognitive enhancement. Yeah, so you always remember. There's um, this uh, um, microdosing kit. Uh, that look, it takes this this idea that that you know what if microdosing has become legal and has become as common as having coffee, mm -hmm. what kind of equipment would people have? Uh, so that in a way that's the, the object in the whole show that I think most people uh, embrace. Who, they think this is not a satire, right? This is just, can I, can I buy this? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, but um, yeah, I mean, our take on it is, was more like, well, what if you were forced to, you felt like you were forced to microdose and you didn't want to necessarily. Um, not that we have anything particularly against the idea of microdosing. I think it's fascinating. Um, and you know our research around that was fascinating in that we we met uh, a doctor who'd done this uh, incredible study which showed that uh, microdosing doesn't make you uh, work better uh, in, in terms of uh, it doesn't make you smarter um, but uh, it actually makes you more open to trying the, mm. a particular task more times uh, so there's a kind of effort benefit it seems um, but um, so the, anyway, that was one object. Um, which one would you like to talk about? Oh, there's this whole area where we got really fascinated about sleep and the impacts that has on our uh, on our bodies and our minds. Um, is that which section is that in? That is called op no uh, um, expedited recovery. Expedited recovery. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we developed. We really got fascinated in the impacts of sleep and how our circadian rhythms have, have evolved and changed, especially in relation to gig work, and the impacts that might have. And we're sort of pushing this idea of how far we're we willing to sacrifice our sleep for, for productivity, which we we already assume. Oh, four hours a night—that's all I need. That's a great, cool thing, maybe. Or, but we know that actually it's really affecting a long-term like ideas about anxiety and depression but also it can have impacts on dementia and, and alzheimer's but so we were just sort of pushing this horrible thought that what if sleep becomes a leisure activity it's almost like mm. um it's something that isn't supported in the way that we think about now it's actually becoming something you snack on so these sleep snackers are devices that heat up and cool down parts of your body that help you nap at a time when you're really, this is the only time you're ever going to sleep. There's no lying down and having a weighted blanket. This is like a wearable, small kind of wearable blanket around your neck or, or around your behind your knee. 
uh, in between your elbow here, this crease bit, um, we were thinking like, is there a system that's almost like hacking your circadian rhythm to become an economic rhythm? A sort of an invest. It's a you sleep in accordance to what credits you would get in and out of doing it. Um, so there's this kind of strange notification system that coexists with these three sleep snacker devices that we showed that tells you if you sleep now, you will lose this certain amount of credits. If you sleep later, you might gain some. So these are kind of just, they almost look a bit like sneakers. They have this kind of leisure wear, visual aesthetic. Um, but we also got really interested in like, how do people sleep? What is the sort of hardcore, the most productive sleep, which two words that make, don't make any sense, but. There's like loads of military terminologies about sleep and efficiencies and how you should sleep better. Um, and then there's like, you know, there's lots of companies that are developing so many products to help you sleep. And then there's lots of very serious sleep issues that people have. So we were looking at all of that and then develop these kind of sleep snacking devices that uh, hint that there is this technology, there's this process about heating you up and cooling you down in order to nap very small amounts. So um, I rambled on there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a really interesting space for us. And there's another device called the REM wake, uh, which you're really good at describing. Yeah, I mean, it was, just, it was kind of coming out of the same sort of uh, research around sleep. Uh, we discovered some research that showed that, that um, if someone is woken during the one of their REM sleep cycles they're actually more alert and and so thinking about this whole kind of um, productivity world of like how can you uh, optimize every, um, someone to uh, to be uh, able to work immediately they wake up uh, we designed this device that could measure when you're in a REM sleep cycle um, and then uh, it would wake you up, but it wakes you up using smelling salts. Uh, so it would be a kind of extraordinary kind of jolt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Start so, slapping at the air. That's right. Yeah. It's so, a, I mean, okay. as you can tell, I mean, there's, there's a bit of a kind of satirical tone mm. to some of these things. They are supposed to be funny and, uh, and ironic. Um, but I think when you see the installation to begin with you don't necessarily think that you think oh this this looks kind of like kind of showroomy and right. you know it, we, we use this beautiful furniture system called abstractor that uh, was initially designed in denmark uh, in the 60s but it's now made in michigan uh, by this company called consort display systems but and we chose it because it, it's just a really kind of minimal system of tubes and connectors and surfaces and it just uh, it's uh, sort of kind of timeless so mm. we wanted something that would uh, seem plausible as a display system that someone might use 10 15 years into the future um, so that kind of is the literal structure of, of the exhibit and then uh, you know we there's sort of two or three objects in each zone uh, and then all of the kind of visuals alongside of it. Yeah, optimize wellness, expedite recovery, enhance, enhance productivity. productivity. And what's the last one? <laughs> you don't set yourself up like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, well. is, is, so is the experience like um, like a, like a being at a trade show or is it meant to be mm -hmm. like in a shop or? 
I guess, um, I mean, we, we didn't specify, um, because I think some stores are actually becoming increasingly like trade shows, mm. uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, you, you have these branded spaces, uh, showing off objects. And, you know, if you're going into somewhere like Best Buy, you know, you, you, you're seeing the same, the similar kinds of, uh, uh, sort of didactics as you might see in a trade show you know you'll have the object but you'll you'll have a little uh, plexi stand with a little write-up about it and maybe a little tv monitor next to it with a video on it like showing you stuff which you know i didn't used to see that in a mm -hmm. department store but uh, now you know now you do so um i think yeah we weren't sort of very precise about it but we we just wanted it to seem like a kind of retail space yeah. where you would see the object and uh, you would see uh, you would be able to read marketing text about it rather than some kind of um you know highfalutin kind of uh, cultural text right, explaining right. you know what a commission someone idea to write was. their kind of insight on it and that kind of, yeah that's right and that was part of the fun of it really we really enjoyed uh, i really enjoyed writing these kind of marketing texts because i love doing that you stuff. kind of borrow Just that getting language. in the mind <laughs> yeah, yeah. channeling that like i'm gonna i'm gonna sell this thing yeah that's right. it's so dark and it's very nuanced i like i like those challenges a lot yeah when I was doing TBD catalog, I just got into this this routine, like it, you know, a couple of evenings a week, because the the workshop just kind of came up with a rough architecture, and it was a chance to kind of run it through and kind of test it, and then actually producing the material was was post workshop, so it's just this wow. it's just this this grind. I was working with commissioned a graphic designer essentially to uh you know, essentially create the the lockups for all the products and i would literally go on i had a license for a stock photography place and it would give me i don't know there's some number you can get five five of these a day hmm. so i would just download five each day you know just and then i would be like that could work great for this one particular product or this kind of effervescent saturated scene of of a woman kind of like bounding through uh, a hill with a bunch of balloons like that's pharmaceutical and then I would just kind of you know construct it make up a name sort of describe it and just sort of channel that it was amazing that was like we were talking about the imagination thing like that was like going to the gym for the imagination every day <laughs> like I'm going to do a whole bunch of you know gymnastics and and build that muscle up um, but I did as you were describing I did want to ask a question because it, it's come um, a few times I mean many times usually um, maybe it doesn't matter but it, it seems to come from students who are in that kind of earnest mode of like they're trying to understand the practice and it'll be like it's actually happening a bunch in the discord now is it always dystopian why is it always so dark what is the it's, it, can you think of another way of expressing these ideas and I've, I've only recently come up to I guess kind of challenge my self to understand that is is that it or is that my is that you mm -hmm. know me is that a generation is that having uh, you know 
come into an understanding of this practice alongside of amazing, brilliant, beautiful cyberpunk science fiction writers and, you know, like living and breathing that and growing up with the Matrix and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that particular image. And it was only recently that I came across um, solar punk. Oh, yeah. And having it described as the response from another generation, which I find absolutely amazing and beautiful and (laughs) hopeful and just kind of like, yeah, okay, you know, let's let's try to do these visions in a more hopeful way. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think there's loads of different places you come come in on that for lots of different reasons, depending on who you are. Um, I think that's a technique for this particular project because of the kind of way that we think about the context. The context was designed objects and wellness and, and gig economy and future of work and productivity and the forced nature of being efficient. Um, because we think we should be productive. We should, we should be fulfilling these kind of uh, ideals of what is productivity. Um, and I think uh, we're just questioning that in ourselves mm-hmm. and doing it through our sort of ways to do it through our sort of maybe it's our, our our sort of particular character our particular um humor perhaps because being british maybe we use humor like that as a kind of we we have a deep concern about it our, the meaning behind the project but we use humor as always to sort of uh address something that's terrible perhaps that might be one way one reason and humor is just a, another method of engaging people in something that that hopefully has hopefully brings people into a space where they can laugh at the way that we do things mm-hmm. laughing at yourself and questioning like what's the next decision i make maybe it should be a better decision but for a student i don't think dystopia is the only way to do things i think there's many different approaches and it it's just about using a communication, a series of communications like that you want to have or interactions you want to have with someone to help them to help share your idea. So is dystopia or humor or dark humor a method for you that works to get your method message across? Um, but I don't know if you've got a different sort of response to that. No, I mean, no, I agree. Uh, I think I maybe a lot of projects use and it's not always dystopia i think it just can can just be a kind of satire uh in in which you choose to show the negative side of something and uh as a means to generate awareness and uh, i think that's what like how satire operates uh, very well in in comedy for example you know you have someone like stephen colbert who will take on this persona of, of uh, a kind of right-wing news broadcaster and you know it's very effective means of, of drawing people in because if you, you know if you don't know him and some people think oh you know who's this guy uh, and then you know he has that that means of uh, you know uses satire to to get people to to question things because then they might well if, if you're 
of uh, you know a particular way of thinking, you might get drawn into it, and you be like, oh, maybe I agree with some of these things mm-hmm. he's saying, uh, and then you re- then you realize that, that that actually the joke's on you. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that in the same way you know, with our work, it's like we want to make products look appealing. We want to draw people into the narrative. And then we want to get them to that point where they're, they're like, oh, this is not real. OK, yeah, well, maybe I should think about my values in relation to endless productivity and, and constantly wanting to work more and, and not really sleep very much. And right. so this is it's a I think it's an effective tool when it's used in the right way um, in a way which uh, I think just trying to make something better um i don't know i'm not saying that that there that isn't going to be effective um because of course then yeah you can go and make that product uh and try and sell it but that's essentially the method that industrial design's been using forever is to say okay well this is the product we have now i'm going to try and think about how i can make that product better but then it's like, what are you really bringing to it? Uh, I think, uh, can you change the paradigm so completely that it really is dramatically different? Yeah, maybe that's where the imagination thing comes back, is that if, if your imagination is tested to not always be dystopian, does that mean that you start creating utopians, which or utopias, sorry, which is a dangerous extreme of one or the mm-hmm. other, or is it just making multiple alternatives? Mm-hmm. There are so many that your mind is blown away because you didn't think about all these ranges. Like we did this project recently with students at school about climate fictions, and we were working um, with the NRDC, mm-hmm. which is like the Natural Resources Defense Council, and they're talking to the students about really difficult issues about climate science. But, you know, really serious stuff. And the students are having to create a climate fiction. They're having to think about how can we talk about these issues and what ranges of feelings do we want to impart on people when I'm developing a fiction? And climate fictions is such an exploding space for fiction. Um, And it's an interesting direction because so many people are trying to get interested in learning about the hard facts of what is going on in our world, but also trying to imagine like what are the uh, current and potential alternatives to the way we could respond and live live on. And those that is when the students they all came up with different types of very melancholy stories or very optimistic ones, but they were quite wide ranging. Um, and it, and we didn't even talk about dystopias or utopias because we're in the dystopia right. of climate change. So how do you talk about something in a different way? And it was all nuance. It was all about how do we emotionally deal with it and how do we become aware of the impacts that it's having on multiple people that you don't know about. And, and we were focused on, on America, but it was very much about different kinds of um, incredible uh, climate science. So yeah, I think I think for for students it is a difficult t- difficult time, but I also think it's an opportunity to try out a whole range of different approaches mm. to thinking about what do we mean by dystopia and what do we mean by utopia. Nothing's ever perfect, so 
let's just have wider imaginations and maybe some of those imaginations can be impl uh, um, sort of applied into helping something happen. Um, but the more people are trying it, the more opportunities there are to imagine things that we hadn't thought about, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, that's my very utopian positive response to that question. <laughs> Sounds good. Cool. I'm just a little aware that we have a long drive ahead yep. of us tonight. I'm sorry. No, that's, um, that's totally fine. I think we're, we're totally yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, of course, I could keep talking for ages, but... I think that's um, amazing. It's a good place so much to fun. Yeah. That was Jess Charlesworth and Tim Parsons, the design studio Parsons and Charlesworth. Thank you very much for listening. Please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash near future laboratory. Your support is very much appreciated and always received gratefully. Please be sure to subscribe and share the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the design fiction newsletter at buttondown.email slash design fiction. I know I've been kind of slacking a little bit on that, but lots been going on here. I've got some additions ready to go. Also, check out the Near Future Laboratory Discord community. You can find all of these links and links to Parsons and Charlesworth's work in the show notes. That's it. I'm Julian, and I'm out. <laughs>